Good evening. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7 through 7 tonight. I'm going to open up in prayer and then we'll get started. Father God, I just ask you to, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, by your grace, and as evidence of your kindness and goodness to us, Lord, just open up our hearers, Lord. Prepare our hearts for this message. May what I speak on tonight, Lord, may it go out, may it find good soil, Lord, and may it produce good fruit to your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. So beauty and strength. It's the title of my message tonight. And I'll start off with a question. Beauty and strength. What images come to mind when you hear those words? When we use those words as a way to describe people, what kind of people do you think of? Every society on a collective level and on an individual level has their own idea of what characteristics or what traits a person must possess in order for that person to be seen as attractive. Americans spend a lot of time and money every year trying to keep themselves looking attractive. Women in America spend tens of billions of dollars every year on cosmetics and cosmetic procedures that alter their appearances and counteract the effects of aging. Men spend billions of dollars every year and millions of hours in the gym trying to hone their physique and maintain their college days form. Not this guy. <laughs> I won't give in, no. Uh, Physically attractive women are propped up on billboards or billboard advertisements and in some cases are even giving their own reality shows simply based on the fact that they are looked at as pretty or attractive. Men are seen to be admired for their domineering strength, their ability to flex their muscle and dominate every area of their lives, whether that be their career their social life, and even their marriages. And speaking of marriage, it seems that for many in our day, the goal is to marry the most attractive or most successful person that you can. Men set their eyes on that trophy wife with the perfect body measurements and looks, and then they flaunt them around as they were spoils of one of their conquests. Women seek to make themselves as physically attractive to men as possible in an attempt to attract their ideal husband and then often use their physical beauty to manipulate and control them. So what ends up happening is we end up with a bunch of marriages where wives seek to have the upper hand over their husbands and husbands seek to dominate and control their wives. And at the end of the day, it's it's all rooted in insecurity. It's all rooted in selfishness. And it's all rooted in sin. Which means we can trace it all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, specifically verse 16. As God curses the relationship between the man and the woman, saying to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Ray Ortland describes the struggle like this. Either she will suffer conflict with her husband or she will suffer domination by him. It's a direct result of man's willful rebellion against God 
in the garden, and it is a curse that has been passed down from generation to generation to every single one of Adam's descendants, which includes you and me also. Not only has our relationship with God been fractured, but our relationships with each other, and specifically in this context, our relationships with our spouses have been fractured. And since it is a sin problem, then that means there is only one cure for this curse. There is only one remedy made available to us that can reverse the effects of the curse. There is only one place where we can go to see true beauty and true strength put on display in this fallen world. We need to go to the gospel. We need to look at the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There we will find true beauty. There we will find true strength. There we will find hope for tomorrow and grace for today. So allow me to show it to you by starting off not in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, but by going back to some verses in chapter 2 that we walked through last month when I last spoke to you. So please, would you turn your attention for a moment just to chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verses 21 through 25. As we pick it up in 2.21, it says, "For For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what we see here is that Peter has just called these believers, these elect exiles, to subject themselves to the governing authorities that God has sovereignly placed over them. We read that in the the verses that preceded this passage last, last time I spoke with you. A difficult task to be called to, for sure, but still essential to their Christian witness. And then he bases their subjection of themselves to these authorities, not in whether the authorities placed over them were worthy or not, Not whether they saw eye to eye, not whether they were gentle or harsh, but rather he roots it in the example of Jesus Christ and his subjection to the Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders. Christ's motivation for his humiliating and painful subjection was the gospel and what God would accomplish through it. His actions weren't motivated by insecurity or fear. Rather, they were founded in a trust and a knowledge of his heavenly Father. They weren't motivated by selfishness. No, it was selflessness. His love for the elect, those who would believe, that sent him to the cross. As God, Jesus' actions could have never been sinful. Rather, they were the only actions that could have ever reversed the effects of sin and death. You want to know what God sees as beautiful? You want to see how God displays his strength? Look at the person and the work of Jesus. Peter is reminding these elect exiles that their subjection to these authorities and the human institutions is a gospel issue. It's not primarily about them. It's primarily about God and what he's doing through them. 
It's about the gospel. It's not primarily about what they are going through, though God does care about that. But rather, it's primarily about what God is doing through them and in them. So let's look at our main text for tonight and be reminded of what God has called us to and why he has called us to it. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands. I'm going to pause there. This word likewise, it's important we take a look at this word because it connects what Peter is saying to these wives to what he has said in the previous section in chapter 2. Likewise, wives, just as citizens to governing authorities, just as servants to their masters, and just as Jesus to the Romans, subject yourselves, submit yourselves to your own husbands. What a countercultural passage this has already shown itself to be, and we haven't even finished verse 1. But it's important to note that this word, subject, also understood to be submit, it's viewed as a nasty word today. For one reason, whether you're a wife or not, female or male, no one likes to be told what to do. Nobody likes to be told that there is authority over them and that they're called to submit to it. But a big reason also for that is because Christian men who have failed to love and care for the wives as they are called to have taken this verse and used it to abuse their God-given authority. Shut your mouth, woman, and do what I say. Submit to your husband. You have to do whatever I say. Don't you know the Bible says you need to subject yourself to me? Let me be clear. That is not what this verse is saying. This does not give a husband the right to abuse his wife or to domineer them, dominate them. That type of behavior is a result of the curse, not of the gospel. And like I mentioned last time, whenever you are given a command to do what God forbids, or you're forbidden to do what God requires, you are not expected to obey. You do not have to submit in those situations. You should not. But that is not the type of situation Peter has in mind here. Peter is referring to a non-abusive marriage where both parties need to be reminded of their calling in their marriage covenant. And that calling looks different for the husband than it does for the wife. There is an order, a chain of command, so to speak. And every other aspect of relationship mentioned in chapter 2 and in here, there are those in authority and there are those who are called to submit to that authority. It's God's design for creation. Now, men and women are equal in essence, in value, in dignity. Both are made in the image of God, and because of that alone, they are both worthy of respect and dignity and love. But they do have different roles in authority and submission, and this is a good thing. It's a good thing for men and women to submit to the order that God has established. Now, this doesn't mean that the woman is required to go around having to submit to every man she comes across. Let's pick it up back in verse 1. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. 
when they see your respectful and pure conduct. This is a call for wives to subject themselves to their own husbands, men that they've entered into a covenant of marriage with. And in this particular passage, it seems that it has a specific purpose. It's for those with unbelieving husbands. Now, there's no evidence that this command is restricted to that type of situation. It's just that what we see here, Peter is simply highlighting the possibility of winning over an unbelieving husband by the conduct of the wife. See, what is believed to have been happening here is that certain women had come to faith in the gospel when it was proclaimed. Now, in this pagan culture, it was expected for a wife of a different religious background to adopt the faith of her pagan husband, or at least add his faith to whatever other faith she practiced. However, Christianity demands absolute loyalty to the triune God of the Bible. A pagan wife converting to faith in Jesus would no longer be able to participate in the pagan worship of her husband's deities. This would cause the Christian wife to be viewed as subversive in her marriage to her pagan husband. So Peter tells these wives to show their husbands respect and honor as to lessen the tension and prevent any conflict that could potentially arise from their difference in their faith. This was an issue in the first century, and this is an issue today in church. In our church, and in just about every other local church, there are wives who have repented and believed in the gospel and are now following Jesus. And sadly, their husbands are not. Maybe that is someone here tonight. Maybe that is someone you know. The Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter is saying, you can share the gospel with your unbelieving husband. By all means, do so. We're called to. But you don't have to turn every conversation into a gospel presentation. Let your husband see the transformational power of the gospel through your conduct and how you respect him, how you love him, and how you pray for him. Let him see the beauty of Jesus shine through your behavior towards him. All the while praying that the Lord might use your kindness and goodwill and love toward him to draw him to faith. So let's pick it up in verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now let's be clear here. Peter isn't saying that Christian women can't braid their hair or put on jewelry or clothe themselves. Obviously, he's saying any of these things are, he's not saying any of these things are sinful or that if you go and you drop 50 bucks at Ulta or Sephora, you're a godless Bible burning pagan. Okay, don't read it that way. I say that because many people have read it that way and have even formed whole doctrines around this misinterpretation. Rather, what Peter is saying here is that you, as a Christian woman, you should be pursuing the highest beauty. A beauty God finds precious. Gospel-centered submission. So go ahead, get dressed up, ladies. Just understand that 
None of that external adorning or beauty is where you should be ultimately banking your hope. It doesn't last. And if all you have to offer your husband and all you have to bring to your marriage is temporary external beauty, what happens when it fades? Rather, adorn yourself with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, Peter says. This doesn't mean you don't have a, 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 a voice in your marriage or a say. It doesn't mean your opinion or your concerns don't matter or they shouldn't be heard. It means the wife should seek to deal with her husband in humbleness rather than in harshness. Be that wife that when situations or conversations have the potential to erupt into a shouting match, you enter in and bring calm and peace. Look, it's okay to be known as beautiful. God created physical beauty. And I believe, though she's not here tonight, that I can honestly say that I married the most attractive woman on the planet. (laughs) And the rest of you husbands, if you're wise, should feel the same about your bride. (laughs) However, this passage says it, it is far better to be known for that part of you that is hidden, that hidden person of the heart, the unseen part of you that displays itself in a submission and gentleness towards your groom that is rooted in gospel hope. Peter uses the example of the women from the Old Testament and calls the women from his first century audience to model themselves after them. He says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This is a proven path, he says, When the women of God in the past wanted to adorn themselves, when they wanted to be seen as beautiful, when they wanted to be seen as attractive, they weren't satisfied with merely fixing themselves up externally. No. They knew where true beauty was found. They knew Yahweh looked past all the fixed up hair, the jewelry, and the clothes. He peered into the heart of the woman and he knew where their hope lied. See, when a woman, when a a wife has fully placed her hope in Jesus and his gospel, it frees her up from finding her identity in anything else. She's able to submit to and serve her unbelieving husband, or in Sarah's case, her believing knucklehead of a husband who didn't always do the right thing. Sarah, who Scripture refers to as a beautiful woman, still pursues spiritual beauty over all else. She wasn't perfect by any means, but she didn't waver in submission to her obedience to her husband. She trusted God, and that evidenced itself in her submission to Abraham. She wasn't worried about what may come or what may happen. Her concern wasn't focused on what other people may think or do to her. It wasn't even primarily on what Abraham may think or do to her. Her submission and reverence to Abraham was rooted first in her submission and reverence to God. She was driven by the reverential fear of Yahweh, and because she feared and revered him above all else, she had no reason to fear anyone or anything else in life. That's just a natural consequence from hoping in God alone. Does your conduct towards your husband, 
Does it reveal that you are trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Have you been freed up by the gospel to now live in a manner where you're not trying to control your husband, but rather you're able to affirm or encourage his leadership? That's beautiful. That's beauty. Let's face it, what Peter is calling women to here in these six verses is not popular in 21st century America. They fly directly in the face of postmodern culture and thought. But I would even argue that as difficult as it is for women in this day and age to hear this call and obey it, it is equally just as radical for men when you consider our sinful pride and inflated egos to be called to what Peter is calling them to do here in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's that beautiful word again, likewise. And just as Peter used it to anchor the woman's submission to her husband in the gospel, Peter is using it again to anchor the man's leading of his wife in the gospel. Again, this is a gospel issue, and when we see it as a gospel issue, it helps to avoid abusing our authority like so many other men have. Juan Sanchez, pastor of High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas, writes, As with women, Peter tackles men's sinful inclinations head on. A man's sinful response to the woman's sinful control is to try and put her in her place. Whenever secular feminists critique biblical Christianity's gender, gender views, they put forth this picture of the domineering male. And sadly, too many Christian men validate their argument. But in fact, male domination is a result of the curse, not the creation. The Bible is just as set against any such conduct as any secular feminist. Men, we are called to use our position of authority to radically love and serve our wives, not to dominate them. Peter calls us to live with our wives in an understanding way. The word understanding is composed of two Greek words here that simply mean according to knowledge. This isn't talking about head knowledge of your wife based off mere intellectual insight but rather it's referring to a deep personal insight and a knowing of your wife. You become an expert in her likes and her dislikes. You know what makes her laugh and what makes her cry. You know what little things, when done for her, make her feel appreciated and loved. You can read her body language when something is bothering her, and you know what her fear and desires are, and you learn how to speak into them and comfort her. Men, we must become students of our wives. Students who are forever pursuing continuing education when it comes to our brides until we have PhDs in wifeology. The more we know about our wives and how God has made them individually, the better able we are to serve them and honor them as the weaker vessel, which just means that generally men are bigger and stronger than women. Husbands are usually bigger and stronger than their wives. Every now and then you hear stories of 
wives carrying their husbands across the threshold, but generally that's not how it works. And as the stronger vessel, we don't use our strength to dominate and conquer our wives because our calling is rooted in the gospel. We use our strength to love, to serve, and to honor our wives. Again, Juan Sanchez says, most men have the potential to control their wives by sheer physical brute strength. But again, that would be to live out the curse rather than God's creation design. No, Christian husbands are to seek to be understanding and honoring, to lead their marriage as Christ leads his church, by loving their wives as Christ loves his people. Christian husbands are to lead their wives with an understanding that leads to a sacrificial servant love, which allows for our wives to flourish and grow as disciples of Jesus under our care. That's what godly leadership does. Brothers, let me make it our prayer, our hope, that our wives will flourish and thrive under our leadership. That our strength will be exhibited and displayed in the way we care for and honor them, not just because they're the weaker vessels, but because they're co-heirs with us to the grace of life. Let's lead them in a way that makes them eager to follow us. That makes it a joy for them to submit to us. If we were to live our lives in a manner where we are constantly neglecting and mistreating our wives and being unloving to them, the result is our prayers will be hindered and none of us want to be in that position. And what this boils down to is we need the gospel. We need Jesus. Married, single, divorced, widowed, we need to be reminded of the gospel daily. We need to be reminded of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just as an example to us, but primarily as our hope in life and death. What he has accomplished for us on our behalf, we need to be reminded of the grace and the mercy and the love that we are drowning in even now as I speak. And we need to live and love in response to that truth, that grace. In our marriages and in every other relationship that we find ourselves in. Mm, I'm sorry. So I'll ask us again. Beauty and strength. What comes to your mind when you hear those words? Hopefully now you'll define those words through the passages, through passages like the last five verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. And in doing so, you'll find the grace to live out passages like 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So I will close in prayer. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your people. I thank you for the gift of marriage, Lord. I thank you most of all for the gift of the gospel, what Jesus Christ himself has accomplished for us on our behalf, Lord. Lord, as husbands, help us to live out our calling in a way that, that shows our strength, Lord, is not in domineering or dominating our wives, Lord, but is 
actually use to love and serve them and help them flourish in their relationship with you, Lord. As for the wives, Lord, I pray that they continually to seek the beauty, Lord, found in gospel-centered submission and what it is that you are doing in them and through them, through that, Lord. And for all of us here tonight, Lord, I just pray that you continue to work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that gospel of grace, Lord, and its transforming power, Lord, so that those outside the church, Lord, can see the beauty and the strength of what you have done for us, the beauty and the strength of Jesus Christ and his gospel and how it shines through us, Lord. And through that, Lord, may you draw others, draw the rest of your elect, Lord, into your flock. In Jesus' name, amen.